When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This live culture gab fest is part of Slate's National Gab Fest Tour, made possible by the all-new 2015 Acura TLX. It's that kind of thrill. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, You and Your Strange Ways Here in Hollywood edition. It's Thursday, October 9th, 2014. On today's show, Jenny Slate is the star of, among many things, the sitcom Married and the indie rom-com Obvious Child. It has been her fate to be knifingly funny and alive in everything she's ever been in, that I've seen at least, and we are beyond psyched to have her join us tonight up on stage. And then Gone Girl is the new movie from director David Fincher adapted from the hit novel of the same name. It stars Ben Affleck as an apparently sociopathic husband and Rosamund Pike as his inconveniently missing wife. And then the screenwriters John August and Craig Mazin join us to discuss life across the divide from us, the woefully sad people known as critics. How do you create the culture we so often snipe at so casually and what do we suppose that know-it-alls not really know-it-all? And finally, speaking of being extremely Cavelli, we are joined by Natasha Leone to discuss her truly, really extraordinary work on the hit Netflix streamer, Orange is the New Black. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. Hi, Los Angeles. Julia, I, I have to say I learned something about you tonight after all these years of doing the show together, which is to find out what Julia Turner really truly thinks of someone, ask her what she thinks of his shirt. <laughs> I like your shirt, Steve. It was the underminer comes right to the fucking surface. As soon as we started talking about clothes, Dana, I love your dress, by the way. Lovely. You look lovely tonight. Oh, oh thank that's you. Terrific. Tonight. Tonight. Um, <laughs> and, and joining me is Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hello, Steve. All right, well, digging in. Jenny Slate is a veteran of SNL, a regular on the FX sitcom Married, and co-creator of the deliriously sweet Marcel the Shell with Shoes videos, which can be seen on YouTube. They are, by the way, amazing. I only just discovered them. Uh, This panelist fell most in love with her portrayal of Donna Stern in the indie romantic comedy Obvious Child. We all loved that movie, all caps. Please welcome the quite amazing Jenny Slate to the show. We thought backstage about how there are a lot of jokes about your last name and the name of our magazine. The problem is none of them are funny. 
so I will gloss over that. But I think of you now as the eponymous Jenny Slate. Um, I found the old show notes. We did a podcast on Obvious Child, and I found the old show notes, and they were very few, which is always a good sign. When I really like something, it's easy to talk about it without a cheat sheet. But here's what they said. They said, built out of elements I hate, yippy young hipster stand-ups, topical pathos, vagina. <laughs> and yet I loved everything about this movie. Um, I really want to say I, I admired that movie enormously. It was scaled so perfectly, which is to say to the human scale, which a uh, few movies do these days. Uh, let me begin by asking you, you've done everything. You've done improv, you've done uh, stand-up, TV series, indie film. Each one is probably taking your life in your own hands in its own way. They seem to be radically different species of vulnerability to someone like me, but again, our theme tonight is the gulf between those who produce and those who just sit and peanut gallery it. So I'm curious to know, what was the difference between all these things? Which of you liked most? Which one was hardest to get comfortable doing? The, the hardest thing for me in general is to sit still or stand in one spot. Um, usually, like, just truly, it is, it is hard. So the hardest thing for me was I did a, th- I did a three-camera pilot mm-hmm. when I moved to L.A. because I was just, I think I felt competitive, and I was like, I, I have to show everyone I can be in a pilot, and then, like, got the pilot and was like, ew, shit, fuck. <laughs> I, like, hated it. And it was all, like, standing in one place and being like, FYI, TMI. It was horrible. And, <laughs> It wasn't funny, and I had to stand in the same place, and I was just like, this is very, very, very dumb. Um, so that, that probably is the hardest, but um, I don't know. None of it, it all seems natural. Um, the improvising, um, pretending to be somebody else. The only thing that's hard for me are saying lines that I don't think are funny. Oh, it embarrasses yeah. me. And I don't like it. Well, because you got your start more as a stand-up, so you're used to writing your own material, and you've had to make this transition to, to working with other people's stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't... That I actually like. I like collaborating. I tend to be, I think, gregarious, but also lonely by nature, and I like being around other people. And I like the thrill of being obedient in an original way and getting encouragement for that, like kind of like how dogs learn to sit. Um, and you're still like, it's sat, but like what's going on in its head? You know, like that is kind of my vibe. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm sitting, but you don't get it. Um, so I, I, I like that. I like being directed. I, I like being obedient. But so, But some of it is like, Sometimes I read something and I'm like, I don't understand why this was ever even written. I just don't get this. I don't, mm-hmm. don't want to do it. But other times, also, it's just, it's just simply a matter of taste. It's like you wouldn't want to say it because you probably also wouldn't want to watch it. Mm-hmm. You, so what happens when that happens? Are you still the obedient pup? The, the best thing about getting a little bit farther in my career is that I can now pick a bit of you know my jobs so I don't end up in that situation a lot but I think when it does happen now I can say I just feel that I'm gonna be bad if I have to say this <laughs> um which is true you know on on Married on FX um the show creator is really open to that kind of dialogue and he says that he can tell when I don't want to say things because I say it in a sing-song voice like I'm mocking it even though I don't know <laughs> 
<laughs> Wait, like, can you do it? Like, I really have a problem with just, I know it's necessary because there are plots and you can't just like walk into a room and do a dance in every scene, but like <laughs> you have to, you know, have a story, but it really, it feels very embarrassing to me to be like, so I heard you guys are moving to Costa Rica. You know, like, it's just like, ugh. <laughs> give it to somebody else. <laughs> give it to somebody else. I don't, I just, I feel like I'm lying rather than performing. Um, I have to say, if this, if I'm terrible the rest of tonight on the show, it's totally your fault. Because mm-hmm. I had a couple of hours yesterday afternoon to prep, and I was going to read all kinds of articles. And I was like, well, first I'll watch an episode of Mary just to get a sense of, of what that show's about. And then I just watched the whole season, like yeah. literally the whole season. They're only 20 minutes. It's so good. And your character on it is so compelling. And she's distinct from some of the other characters you've portrayed but has something in common with them which is that she has a lot of sharp edges she makes like a lot of bad decisions yeah sometimes she's hard to root for and yet there's something in the way you portray her that makes you root for her make you understand a little bit about what is underneath that Hmm. but I'm curious about how you've ended up with this string of roles of like women with like a little bit of sharp elbows do you seek those roles out do they seek you out do you like playing them I I first I just came here I was just seeking a job just just seeking a job wanting to work and be in a community of working um people but I think the the first things that I I ended up with were like um Liz on the Kroll show and Mona Lisa on Parks and Rec and those were actually both written by the same person um a comedian Joe Mandy who I've known since I started doing stand up and um, I've said this before, but I, I, and he lives across the street from me, and I was like, do you, I don't think I'm like those characters at all. <laughs> and I was like, do you think I'm, do you think I'm a bitch? Like, do you, do you, am I a bitch and I don't know it? And, and it, it's sort of like, and Lena Dunham wrote a part for me in Girls also, where I play this like insufferable, self-congratulatory, like really insecure, but you kind of feel bad for her, but she's just a, piece of shit person and she was like I wrote this part just for you and I was like what the fuck like what the fuck I really don't think I'm like that I I truly don't I don't think I'm like a person who's just like a little bit of like braggart is like always seeping out I just don't think that but I also think that these characters are um they were sort of trendy and there needs to be a way for them to be palatable so I guess I spin it on myself and I'm like but I love most people, so maybe they gave it to me so that I could soften the edge. That's what I have to tell myself so that I don't walk around feeling like like a just a terminal cunt. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> someone who does not know herself, and I think I'm smiling, and instead I'm like side-eyeing everyone. I don't know. I don't know. But don't you also write that kind of material for yourself in a way? It seems like a lot of your stand-up also, you sort of become this persona of this person who says just the worst, pettiest, most venal thing that maybe everyone thinks but they don't dare to express. Yeah, I mean, I tend to really become an animal in my Twitter feed a lot. Um, I really like that. I really sweat it out on Twitter. Um, I just really, I really like that. I like the idea of someone, like, taking their phone into the bathroom and, like, just thinking they're going to, you know, do nothing on their phone. And then it's just like, Piscati night, titties out, fuck you. Like, it just, like, whatever. <laughs> Get off your phone. Um, but in my stand-up, it's actually more about my family. And I, I tend to think my stand-up is actually very, like, sensitive. But in general, the, the role on Married and the roles that I seek out now, I just 
want them to be some sort of a woman from our world. I, I really feel done playing women who are like male fears personified, I guess, like sexist fears. I think there, there is some of that, um, especially in comedy, and it does bum me out, and I don't want to lend my voice to that anymore. All right, well... Cool. Yeah, here, here, absolutely. Um, <laughs> speaking of lending your voice, I had never even, I'm embarrassed to say, heard of the Marcel, the shell with shoes videos until I think either Dana or Julia put me onto it with enormous enthusiasm, and now I see why. They are the most endearing things I've seen in forever. Uh, what is the genesis? Uh, do people know these videos? I mean, yeah, Steve, everybody I, knows these videos, I t- except I t- you. I tend to be the in the 26th millionth tranche of people, cohort of people who discover a YouTube video, so no reflection on anybody other than me. But, um, but they're, they're darling, beyond darling. What, what was the genesis of them, and do the voice? Um, <laughs> you know what? I like that. I like do the voice. Like that, that's better than like... Do you ever do the voice? You know, it's like, uh, I, but I like doing the voice. Oh, um, oh no, you're doing the voice. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, it, it's like a little voice like this, <clears throat> and it's very small, so I have to do it into a microphone. Otherwise, people can't really hear it. <laughs> but I, I like to do it, and um, I like to do it around my around my home. <laughs> but that's that's <laughs> thank you <laughs> but we have we have found your yin yang right I mean it's like Marcel the shell and terminal cunt right yeah and it's like these two things like flow and blend into one another and it creates the Jenny Slate palette yeah there's <laughs> there's a lot of stuff there's a lot of stuff I guess um <laughs> How do you guys go about making those videos? You make them with your husband, right? I make them with my husband, Dean Fleischer Camp. Um, yeah, he's cool. He's a cool person. I like him. Um, he's actually at our house right now making uh, a third Marcel the Shell video that will come out when we have a picture, a second picture book coming out. And um, first, first we record, and it's sort of to like see where Marcel is at. Um, <laughs> And which is funny, but so he'll like he'll ask me questions. Like this time, he was like, "I think I'd like to film Marcel outside." So we started outside um, because it's all nat- you know naturally lit. The sound is just me holding a lav mic. It's not like we don't do it in a studio. We started doing it in our house as something just to do together um, during a time when I was just starting in the entertainment industry, like was overwhelmed, was about to get fired from a job and really just needed to get back to the mindset that was and is, especially with the internet, but in general in the world, even before computers, <laughs> nobody can stop you from being creative. That's just not a thing, you know. So we started to do it and we'll go outside and he'll be like, so why are we outside? And then, you know, it'll be like, uh, well, we're outside because I, I got locked out. And then it's like, why'd you get locked out? Why are you out here? You know? And we improvise, and then Dean um, location scouts around our house. Um, <laughs> the plant. This morning I woke up, and he was like, don't move. And I was like, huh? You know, like, and he had, was filming, like, the light coming through the window, but it stopped motion, which, so, like, if I were to move, I could potentially change the light temperature in the shot. So, like, I was just, you know, there, just, like, <laughs> lying there, <laughs> feeling like I was 
I have to go to the bathroom so bad, babe, um, <laughs> and had to wait there. But that's, you know, just it's all homemade. And Dean really is the one who sets it all up. He animates it. He, he puts the audio together and creates the narrative. Um, and it's really his sort of Borscht Belt sense of humor that's like, get guess what I use is a pen, a pen, but it, it takes the whole family, you know, to lift it up. He's very small. That's awesome. And in terms of the genesis of Marcel, was it the voice that came first that you would play with? Not the little creature. He built that later. Yeah, the voice came first um, on a weekend. I was, we were at a, a wedding, and um, I imagined, for, from my perspective, it was that I was in a room. I was sharing a hotel room with my best friend Gabe and our friend Mike and his husband and my husband and like our other friend. There were just so many men in there, and they all took like 90-hour showers. And I was just like, what? And um, I felt very small and started to be like, everybody's taking so long to wash up. <laughs> And everyone was like, oh. And I just thought it was, me, me, again, maybe I don't know myself, but my, my best friend Gabe was like, you know, I've heard you say that. And what you're leaving out is the night before you got so drunk that you ran out of the local karaoke bar and climbed up on top of an 18-wheeler and started screaming and you broke your brain. And the next day you started doing that voice. So there's versions of the story. <laughs> All right, that's excellent. So, um, one. Thank you. Gap. JK, JK. I plainly you have rib a. me, I rib you. One last thing in keeping with the theme of the night, which is not whether or not evil is banal. It, um, it's, uh, <laughs> is there anything you're at the center of a show business career? Is there anything you would convey to, or you're frustrated that you need to convey to people who are not in that world but are in your world? What would it be? I mean, is there something people just do not get? You know, East Coaster liberal elitists like us or, you know, fill in the blank or whomever. Is there anything in particular or is that just a curveball? Can I ask one other slight version of this question? Yeah. So, so Jenny Slate and I went to elementary school together, actually. Yep. And so the last time I saw Jenny Slate on a stage, it was in the Thatcher Room in, I think, like the sixth grade production of Annie with a Twist. With a Twist. If you are an elementary school teacher, this is actually a really good idea for a musical. It's part Annie and part Oliver, so there's orphans of both genders. <laughs> yeah, but, the, but Oliver and all of his boy orphans came to America. Right. That's what, that's what the story was about. I didn't have the fine points of the plot fully in mind. Anyway, but like, you know, you, like I knew you when you were a kid, and now you're like a big fancy movie star. Like, oh, what's geez. the most surprising thing about it? <laughs> the, um, the most surprising thing to me is that it, it's exactly like I imagined it, except for less scary. Like, I really have always wanted to have what I have, which is like, a, you know, my, a nice smart, handsome husband and, like, privacy in that and a dog and, um, you know, adult female body. I've always, like, really, truly wanted that. Um, <laughs> just being, like, super stunted and, and late to puberty, I was always just, like, cannot wait to just, like, get some jiggly things and, like, just, like, wear them around and get it all, get it all in people's faces. Um... <laughs> But it's also that my daily life as an actress is like what I imagined, and that to me seems ex- like like a dream. Like it, not that I'm employed, but like 
I don't know. I like how I do it. And so it doesn't seem new to me. In fact, it sort of seems old. Um, and it seems like a game that I played so much that it came true. That is a great answer. <laughs> and I mean it. Thank you so much for coming on our show. It Thank you for having thrill. me. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, this is Steve, and I'm backstage at the Belasco Theater in downtown Los Angeles. I uh, wanted to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by Acura and the all-new 2015 TLX Luxury Performance Sedan. For decades now, Acura has built performance sedans with unwavering purpose and passion. The all-new 2015 TLX represents more than the latest evolution. Rather, it's the clearest expression yet of Acura's performance philosophy, its power, and control brought into perfect balance. It's anticipating where the driver wants to go, changing the way wheels move, and the way they guide you. It's uncompromised design in the name of unrestrained feeling, putting exhilaration front and center once again. It's that kind of thrill. Check out the all-new 2015 TLX at Acura.com slash TLX, or better yet, experience the thrill for yourself and take a test drive at your local Acura dealer. All right, back to the show. All right, let's move on. Gone Girl is the blockbuster adaptation of Gillian Flynn's huge blockbuster novel of the same name. Flynn's Flynn's novel was a marrow-chilling study in marital disaffection with elements of Edgar Allan Poe. The movie is directed by David Fincher, who did Help Me Out, Social Network, Seven, The Dragon Tattoo Movies, Movie, there are more to come, I'm sure, Seven. It stars Ben Affleck, who I think it's now safe to say has walked it all the way back from Jiggly, and Rosamund... Some others of us haven't. And, uh, and also Rosamund Pike. Um, a friend of mine described Rosamund her Pike. as all the goody-goody parts of Laura Linney crossed with all the wicked parts of Sharon Stone. She's quite amazing in that book. Day I want to start with you. I'm really, I don't think I know what you think of David Fincher, but we'll get there in one second. I want to know what you thought of this particular movie. You saw it, yes. Right, yeah. Hmm. Okay, I'm excited for this conversation because this seems to be a movie that divides people strongly and that people have strong opinions about, and I know Julia and I disagree about it. I guess I'm going to just start off by saying I loved it. I mean, I don't think it's a perfect movie. I think it's full of problems and strangenesses and mysteries that I didn't get, but I wanted to see it again before I wrote on it. In fact, I had to. I had this feeling that before I wrote my review, I had to go back and see it again. It had too many unanswerable questions not to do that. And the second time through, I felt the same sense of ravishment and seduction as the first time. I agree with you, but I want to ask first, did you read the, um, did you read the book? Yes, did I you did. Read the book? Mm-hmm. Oh, what did you I would be very book? interested to imagine how the movie landed for people who hadn't read the book. In fact, I'm going to throw this out. Can you applaud so they can hear you on the podcast if you read the book, first of all? Okay. And if you saw the movie? All right. It sounds And who here has done neither? <laughs> All right. All right. The Hannah Arendt discussion group is in session. <laughs> You're so okay. proud of yourselves. Oh, my God. <laughs> There was really a lot of self-congratulation in that. Yeah, I noticed. Having neither read nor seen Gone Girl, I guess we I guess we won't spoil then. I guess we won't. But But um, so wait, just to finish my answer about that. So having read the book and knowing the twists, all the various twists that were going to happen, we should mention that the the movie was adapted by Gillian Flynn, who wrote the novel. So it sticks pretty closely to the story of the original. I think the the movie is better. I think the movie is a more effective work of art overall. 
a greater work of cinema than the book is a work of literature. That's interesting. Okay, so you disagree. <laughs> Julie Turner is, is shaking her head. I'm shaking my head, as makes for great podcast audio. <laughs> great radio. You read the book? I read the book. And you've I seen the, the movie. movie? Yes. Okay. Um, and you prefer the book to the movie? Yeah, the book is so much better than the movie. The movie is good. You should go see it. Those of you who have read the book and haven't seen the movie should go see the movie. But those of you who have done neither and aren't too pleased with yourself to not do either <laughs> should, should read the book, at least first, I think. The book, I mean, so without spoiling it, the book is the story of like a deeply psychotic marriage gone horribly spoilt and wrong. And the mysteries in the book are sort of whose fault it is and how it happened and, and what actions have been taken about that and how you should feel. But, you know, it's... it's it's dark. It's dark. And it's very interior. And it gets very deep into the head of both the husband and the wife character. The achievement of the book, which is, I think, the single pulpiest, like, unput downabliest book that I've read in a long time, just in terms of wanting to know what the hell happens next, um, and yet pairs that with actual psychological acuity about this particular totally messed up relationship, it's a really rare achievement. And the film, and also some interesting economic insights about these two characters who, you know, begin in sort of Tony New York lives and then lose their jobs in the recession and end up, you know, living on the banks of the Mississippi and um, just, you know, down and out and, and it strains their marriage. And this movie is just so glossy and exterior and beautiful and all of the suspense parts are still there and they're really beautifully done and if you want to see a suspenseful thriller you should go see it. But the insight about economics and what it feels like to be inside a tense marriage, I didn't think that came through as much. I mean, this movie in its visuals looks a lot like the uh, Dragon Tattoo movie. Mm -hmm. You know, they're sort of like damsels and evil men in beautiful homes deep in the secluded woods that look like they might be used in advertisements for expensive hi-fi equipment like it <laughs> I don't know it's just glossy it's glossy in a way that the book doesn't is it feel. filmed in a palette of muted hysteria <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I don't know but Dina maybe I, tell me tell me where I'm wrong I guess, I mean, the, the movie is up to something very different than the book is up to. I think that that's true. I think that the movie has, in a way, a more jaundiced eye on marriage than the book in the sense that it, it's, it's filmed with this chilly remove. And the, the reference that kept coming up for me while watching the movie, which never occurred to me while reading the book, was Hitchcock. Not because he's being explicitly referenced or, or emulated by David Fincher in any way, but because that kind of... Jaundice mis- misanthropy mm-hmm. is very Hitchcockian, and Rosamund Pike's whole look, the kind of chilly, desaturated colors, and her icy blonde style is Hitchcockian, and, and her, her character is. Her performance is so, like, matted down in this, I think, fascinating way. I, if you care, I really loved the movie. Um, I thought it was a superb adaptation. The uh, screenwriter was sole credit to Gillian Flynn, the author of the novel. It's going to be fascinating to talk to John and Craig about, uh, about that. Um, I like the fact that the villain of the piece might be marriage itself. Uh, I love the theme that's hammered in the beginning, middle, and the end, that the closer you get to someone, uh, the more of a stranger they are in some way, because you begin reaching those parts of anybody that are eternally inaccessible. I thought the novel was the best genre novel I had read of, of that specific type since Silence of the Lambs. I thought it was just totally gripping throughout, and um, without giving anything away. like Both the movie and... The, or one other thing is I love how the parents are a huge and important and consequential backstory in both 
in both the book and the movie. It was one of the things that, for a sense of economy, you might have left out of the screenplay. But oh, see, I actually, thought it was a weakness that the parents were less, less filled-out characters in the movie. But they were present, and in a causal way, you sensed, without giving anything away, that this person had become who she was because of them. And that was demonstrated with, a, with I thought, a degree of elegance, narrative elegance, Anyway, so I, I, I quite loved it. But what was the last thing I was going to say? I just told well, you. Well, I have a question for you about your point about marriage, which may or may not have been the last thing you were going to say. But so the book, it does, is marriage the villain? Because on the one hand, it feels like marriage is the villain. Like you try and get closer to someone, you can't possibly know them. You know, it's, it's, it's tantalizing and tricky. And the closer you get, the further you are. But these people, again, be advised about spoilers. They're not normal people. Like they behave in abnormal dark and deeply twisted ways that are presumably not what's beyond the knowability of your partner. And I guess the movie's just raising the specter that maybe that is what's there. I don't know. I wasn't sure I found that so useful. Oh, I thought the the hook was into what I think a lot of people of a certain generation are experiencing as married couples depicted in a recognizable way, and then once you're hooked, you're drawn. It reminded, it reminded me of the narrative of A. Gordon Pym. You know, Poe, it really reminded me of when Poe like kind of gets you. His ho- the hooks are in, and then he's just dragging your bloody self further and further into this internal hell of his. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're three pretty enthusiastic thumbs up. Yes, obviously, Fincher fan. Yes or no? Definitely like to see his movies. They're always super fascinating. They're beautiful and that pulsing, dark, mysterious mood. It's like fun to dive into a Fincher puddle. I think, I'm not sure he like understands humans in an interesting way. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't need that from every movie. <laughs> from nobody. Um, yeah, he's a filmmaker who's about surfaces. I guess I would say my general Fincher fandom is not that intense. I really love the social network. I sort of don't necessarily love the Fincher that super Fincher heads love, like Zodiac. Great, mm-hmm. I mean, a, a great crime thriller, but not something that I worship as a great work of cinema. Because he is so icy and kind of Hitchcockian and all about surfaces, he's not dear to my heart exactly, but I'm always excited to see what he'll do next. Okay, excellent. So the movie, obviously, is Gone Girl, by, uh, directed by David Fincher, from the novel by Gillian Flynn. It stars Ben Affleck. I think I called him Ben Affleck uh, before. <laughs> and uh, Rosamund Pike. Uh, check it out. Come to our Facebook page. Tell us what you thought of it. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All right. Moving on. John August is the screenwriter of such films as Go, which I will say is a personal favorite of mine, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and Frankenweenie. Craig Mazin wrote the two latest installments in the Hangover series, as well as Identity Thief and Superhero Movie. Together they collaborate on a wonderful podcast called Script Notes. We could not be more pleased to talk to two expert craftsmen about the writer and the making of a Hollywood film. Please welcome to the stage screenwriters John August and Craig Mazin. Hey, guys. Hi. Hi. Hey, is that right? Am I a master craftsman, Dana? Is that right? (laughs) (laughs) I haven't gotten that from you yet. (laughs) But if it makes you feel any better, neither have I. Uh, If your name is uh, Craig Mason, raise your hand. If your name is John August, raise your hand. Um, Wait, you have to... Because they're podcasts, they have this distinctive hello. Will you guys do your hellos? Hello and welcome. My name is John August. My name is Craig Mason. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a fan of your podcast. It's Thank so you. fun to have you guys on the Thank same you. stage. I'm sorry, Thank Steve. You. 
Uh, please, uh, <laughs> dig right in. Actually, I want to start by saying I had my very, this is actually a true story, I had my very first Hollywood pitch yesterday. So how did it go? Uh, do you know the phrase, bought it in the room? Mm. That didn't happen. It <laughs> It was, you know what, I'll give you, an, and I had another one today. I'll give you a very honest response was, I, I, there was, I kind of loved it for the reason that it was like nothing I've ever seen depicted in all the silly movies that depict Hollywood. Mm. And in fact, they were just professionals who knew their business, and it was no drama Obama. No I, Weimar honors, no crack, no Oxycontin. Exactly yeah. right, and no yeah. Jaws meets this or whatever. It was like very, very, very intricately smart people who understand the relationship between narratives that work and people who will pay money to go see them. I mean, it right. was, it was, And it was, so they rejected you. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I just want to say, Craig, I love the movie Go. Oh, yes. I, that I movie that. is a perfect... It. Yes. It's like Swiss watchwork. It's the most adorable thing you've seen ever. It's Swiss, it's Swiss clockwork lubricated by butter. Yes. It's yes. just gorgeous. John's films it went are gorgeously by like lubricated. That. No question. Um, anyway... Um, we want to get into the subject of who authors a film, which is a rabbit hole we can kind of go down, half down, or ignore completely, but uh, it's an interesting one to me. Um, but I want you just, if it's okay, really quickly to describe your careers and how you got where you are. You're having a dream career. What, uh, how did that come about? John, why don't we start with you? I was a journalism major. I went to journalism school at Drake University, Des Moines, Iowa. Um, I realized halfway through that I didn't really want that major, but I loved the writing I was doing. I loved that sort of structured writing that journalism is. And I found out there was such a thing as a screenplay, that there was such a thing as a film school. And I applied and got into USC, moved out here with my rusted Honda, and, uh, and started you know, reading scripts for people. And then I started writing. And I started writing Go, the screenplay that first got made, while I was still in film school. And so it was very much that experience of being 26 years old and seemingly immortal. And that became my first movie. That is fantastic. And the Weimaraner was wow. suddenly seated next to you in the car. Um, <laughs> Craig, what about you? Uh, I was a uh, pre-med student in college, and uh, around my senior year, it, it, it became very clear that I just, I did not want to spend, uh, I was, I was going to be a, a neurologist, and I just, I, I still am fascinated by the brain and, and by neurology, but not by people with neurological disorders. They're <laughs> just, it's a bummer. Uh, I don't know how else to put it. <clears throat> they do die on you a lot. Um, and I... Uh, and I was fascinated by the entertainment business. I was fascinated by entertaining people. Um, I loved movies, and I loved television shows. And um, so uh, and you had a rusted Honda. I had a rusted Toyota. I drove out here. I didn't know anybody. And um, just got a, I got a job because I could type and sort of worked my way into a position where I could pitch movies and, and write movies. And I've been doing it since 1996 now, 95, 96. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay, so you've just watched a movie. Uh, let's say the credits come at the end. You admire it. You think uh, it was, uh, you know, uh, in some ways, uh, you know, narratively elegant. Uh, the characters were very alive. You got lost in the world. Uh, no fat to be trimmed. And the name comes up, and it's a screenplay by, you know, and it's a single credit, a credit to a single person. How confident are you that what you just saw was authored by that person? You don't necessarily know whether that screenplay credit reflects what actually made it onto the screen or not. Uh, credits for films are determined by the Writers Guild, and there's a whole process you go through. It's 
as good as we can make that process, but it's still not perfect. Mm-hmm. You're competing, there's two competing forces. You want the credits to accurately reflect who wrote the movie, but you also want to uh, not dilute the credit by sharing it among a bunch of people who, if, if, if 12 writers did a little bits on it, you don't want to sort of necessarily make it seem like 12 people did little bits on it. So what I will say is different is um, when we see that credit going by, we already know. We sort of, actually everybody really does know who did the work on the movie. And so there's lots of movies that will not have a certain writer's credit on them, but everyone knows in, t- in town knows they worked on it, and that's very helpful for their career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's, I think it's actually gotten better. Mm-hmm. Um, we have changed. I, I'm the one of three co-chairs of the credits committee that okay. reviews the rules and then puts rules changes to the membership. And we've had about two or three rounds of rules changes that have been successful. And they've been good changes, and I think that they have made the credits more accurate. It's a difficult um, situation. Um, There have been miscarriages, no question. Mm -hmm. But uh, John's point is absolutely true. We know who wrote the movie. Mm -hmm. We who are in the business, we know. And what do you... I'm curious what you especially admire about a screenplay. What makes you wish you had written one when you get to the end of the film or you read it on the page? What, What elements of story or character or shape or... Well, you know, um, when I think of movies where I've really zeroed in on what I thought were, was uh, fundamental to the screenplay, it was a question of a harmony of elements, that there were scenes that internally were using plot to reveal character, character revealing plot, plot and character revealing theme, conflict revealing um, potential resolution, and then taken as a sum, those scenes all work together to create some sort of thematic whole out of that. That's, that often is what I admire, but sometimes I just am entertained. And more than anything, when I go to the movies, it's to be entertained. Yeah. When you read a screenplay, you recognize that it's an, a form of incredible efficiency. Um, you have to be able to convey with just a few words in 12-point courier what this whole world feels like and what these characters are like. And so every word counts in ways that it doesn't necessarily in a novel. A novel can spend three pages talking about how soft the sheets were. The movie doesn't actually have those senses. You can't describe things that you touch or feel. It's only what you can see and what you can hear. So you're finding ways to describe instead of this whole world with just these very limited windows into it. And so the best screenplays I've read they have these characters that take these amazing journeys through amazing worlds, and you can't believe that they did it all just on the page there. Mm-hmm. Give me um, a couple of names of movies that you wish you had written, right? or, or that you especially admire. You know, it's one thing to see a movie on the screen, because that's the finished product. And you have to remember that screenplay is really the blueprint for this building that's not built yet. And so one of the luxuries is we sometimes get to read screenplays well before they're filmed, or things that have never got filmed. So I remember in film school reading... Quentin Tarantino's original script for Natural Born Killers. And it's just brilliant. And I got to the end and I flipped back to page one and started reading it all over again. It was incredibly important. Um, people, you know, East Coast may not recognize that like Aliens is an incredibly important script for people in our business. We read that script and it actually transforms sort of like how you describe action on the page. And this is the second in that this series. This is James Cameron's and Aliens. Cameron did the screenplay as well as directed it. Yeah. Correct. And so the way he described action was incredibly important. And so all action movies from that point forward probably owe some debt to sort of what he Wait, was doing so on the page. what was the innovation? What did he do differently? Uh, there was an innovation. There's a way of talking about the camera, talking about like how we're moving through things. Um, Cameron wrote both a scriptment, which is like a 70-page document of the movie without the dialogue, sort of, and then he wrote the full version of the script. And sort of everyone of mine Craig's generation who read movies at that time, read action movies, that was the one he sort of kept going back to. 
Yeah, well, and you, you know, John's making a really interesting point that the question that you're asking is a little impossible because the truth is I never see a movie and think I wish I could have written that movie. You can't write that movie. That movie is not just written. It was written and it was then rewritten and it was performed mm-hmm. and captured and edited and scored. So it's not possible. Um, yeah. But what, what we can do is we read screenplays. Uh, Jerry Maguire is one of the best screenplays I've ever read. It's just absolutely just perfect for me. Yeah. Um, not objectively perfect, but for me it was perfect. Um, when I saw Ocean's Eleven. I saw Out of Sight and I thought I would love to meet the guys that wrote this movie, you know, and I did. That was great. Um, but but I, I understand that it's not possible to say, well, I wish I could have written that, that yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah. That brings me to something that seems like it's, it's key to your podcast, which is really great for somebody on the critical end to, re- to read, which is, I mean, to hear on your podcast, which is that you're sort of anti-autorists, right? I mean, you're really not so focused on a movie as the production of one director, and you really know from the inside out that it's a collaboration and that vast numbers of people have to be on the same page in order to make a good movie. There was a podcast you guys did about two weeks ago with Jeff Koons, the artist, and the visual artist, and you guys saw Balloon Dog and all that stuff. And it was amazing because you're walking through with this curator and he was talking about sort of the intention and sort of how things came to be. It was a great episode. Um, but it struck me that you can talk about a visual artist that way because even though he has a team of people doing stuff, it's really all his vision. Like that thing is, is one person's thing. And I think there's this instinct sometimes for press and for critics to think about um, works as having a single creator. There's, you guys are almost creationists sometimes. And, uh, and really the process of getting movies made is almost like this Darwinian survival thing. There's all these movies competing to, to get made, and you're only seeing the ones that sort of got made. It doesn't mean they were the best ones. It doesn't mean it was like clean or pretty how they happened, but they're the ones that made it to the theater. And even the product itself is the, is the function of an internal evolution among a lot of people fighting. I mean, for instance, you guys just had a discussion about Gone Girl and you disagreed about some things. You really thought one passage was cool. You thought that was weak. You liked the parents. You thought they were not so great. These fights happen constantly on every movie except that one of you is the boss. (laughs) Yeah. Okay? This is a problem, obviously, but some decision has to be made. The movie is... Anybody who thinks that movies are authored by one person is higher than the highest crack can take Yeah, it's never gone anywhere near the movie yeah, making process. Yeah, they're just so yeah. divorced from the process of what it means to make a movie. Okay, but I have a question for you. Sorry, I'm stepping on you, boss, lady. Um, <laughs> because I'll forget it if I don't ask it right now. Okay, so we're all postmodernist, Darwinian evolutionists, anti-authorship, uh, you know, post-auteur, cognoscenti up here. Stipulated. <laughs> um, and yet it begins with a room of one's own. It begins with you doing the paradigmatic writer thing. You're alone with the blinking cursor and your own conscience yeah. and the internet and email and on and on and on. I mean, you have all the you know, classic struggles of self-battling that a writer has. How is it to then also be in a medium that's utterly collaborative and evolutionary and, and your darlings are going to get killed, but not even by you. Well, it's, it's uh, an endless struggle, and this is why screenwriters um, are stereotypically whiny. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, watch adaptation, you know. Um, uh, it's very difficult, and it's incredibly difficult because it's emotionally painful, we are required to create something that we believe in that is entirely within our control and is in fact authored. And then we are required by the nature of filmmaking to cede control of it and to see it reauthored because unlike any other form of writing, screenwriting is not meant to be read. It is not meant to be consumed by anyone. It is meant to in fact be transformed into something else entirely. 
So we are always on the razor's edge of this emotional pain. Um, and then, of course, somewhere down the line, after we've survived the many, many you flames, get, you get paid nine hundred grand. I get to, to Dana's review. <laughs> that's that's my reward. That's the reward. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You made me laugh so hard that my gap flashed the whole room. <laughs> that was good. Okay, well, let's end it out on that positive note. I could talk to you guys all night, but unfortunately, we've got to move on. But Craig Mays and, and John August, thank you very much for coming thank on the show. Thank you for having us. It was a real Thanks, guys. Uh, the podcast they do is uh, terrific. You should check it out. Script Notes. All right, moving on. Orange is the New Black is the hit Netflix series about a semi-descript white chick who goes to prison. The show is justly both a hit and a critical darling. It's fair to say that from the awesome Regina Spector theme song to the closing credits, everyone on this panel loves it, adores it. One of the show's highlights by far is the performance of Natasha Lyonne, who plays Nikki Nichols, an extremely descript white chick and radically undermothered child of privilege. We are so, so lucky to have Natasha Lyonne joining us tonight. Natasha, come on out. Thank you. It's very nice of you. All right. So I think our audience really wants to know who would survive better in a women's prison, Dana, Julia, or me. (laughs) So you're an option. Oh, yeah. Throw me in. Oh, man. I don't know. I feel like that dress is a pretty dangerous number in a women's prison. I feel like that's really asking for big trouble. (laughs) But uh, what do I know uh, from women's prison? I think that's why I'm here. Um, I think in a lot of ways it's actually a weird thing to kind of be in this this position to kind of speak about. You know, the the show is is such a hit and so terrific and... uh, and yet, of course, you know, prison is like a very real thing. So I think it's just a, um, it can be a little bit peculiar to try to answer questions like that in this sort of fun, zany way. Um, <laughs> just because, like, as much as I love, like, uh, you know, Woody Banter and Bits and all these things, and I'm very much like uh, it's a real free-for-all um, in my brain. I just, uh, you know, of course, I have a, a sort of a working experience or whatever, a working knowledge of... Uh, of uh, how insane, like a, a you know, um, a, a fucked up life can be, and so I think it's it's sort of a it puts me in a tricky position to try to be like, hey, hey, hey who's gonna do the best in prison? And um, and yet, of course, I'm in that position where the show is so great, and I love to support it, and uh, and you know, my brain is a sick place. So. Well, but it is. Uh, I agree, basically, with the sentiment. I just don't know how to answer the question, honestly. Next question, then. I could do this all night. So, Orange is the New Black is my favorite show on TV, and it's not even on TV. It's so good, and it's so good because it's about something that's so serious and important. I mean, it is. It's just TV. It's in a fantastic drama. The stories that you guys tell are amazing. The characters that you've built are amazing. The range of characters, you know, to see women of that many races, of that many ages, all on one show like it feels like every single woman character on that show could maybe get away with being the like kooky sidekick on every other show but to have that huge group of really fascinating characters feels like something I've never seen before as a sheer piece of like television innovation and also it's like 
an important show because it's like about this issue and it's interesting I wonder how the creators and how you guys think about it working on the show balance you know the responsibility to the subject matter and the very real issues at stake there and the responsibility to like narrative and it's fun to see um, you know like a competition to see who can get with more girls in the prison I'm a big fan of this podcast um listen to I love that vocal fry <laughs> um, it's fun to do this in person. Uh, I um, well, Genji Cohan is a you know very big deal and a very big mind, and the writers are uh, really excellent. And obviously, they have that uh, source material of uh, Piper Kerman's you know real life in there. Uh, I do, you know I don't write the show, so I'm not quite sure how they do it, but I love to take credit for it. And uh, <laughs> so I'll tell you how we do it. <laughs> and we sit in the room and we just throw it up on the board and we think. But uh, I mean, the thing about the sidekicks, I think, is interesting. You know, just in terms of like as a culture that we've sort of the audiences are, uh, you know, and like increasingly advanced with the IQ, which is just sort of this weird, you know, duality happening um, societally that there's uh, on the one hand this like intense dumbing down, and uh, that's you know really overwhelming and like you know this. Uh, like, um, whatever, all these are, like, horrible, like, apocalyptic novels about, like, you know, a scary future, whatever. It's, like, really bad, right? Or just, like, idiocracy. And then on the other hand, like, uh, there's this other thing going on where, you know, culturally, you know, audiences are so ahead of the game. Like, you know, we don't need to... um, I read this um, parts of a book once, just being honest, uh, about something uh, called... Like, it was, like, about the science of repetition, you know, and how as a... A culture, it's like we actually only need sort of three words to sort of get the idea of what, you know, somebody is saying in a, in a sentence. Let's say if I'm reading a sentence, I kind of am just picking out words and I sort of get the idea. Um, so I think that's sort of what's happening with uh, a lot of certainly like cable entertainment that we're ahead of the curve. So if we're just seeing like archetypes of like, okay, I get it. She's the fucking hot one. She's the quirky one. She's the whatever one. So it's interesting that we're at this time where suddenly like we want... Like, tell me the other stories. Like, give me all of those stories all at once. That's what I'm fucking hungry for. It's very optimistic. Well, also, okay, so Piper is the quote-unquote straight man of the show in some way, right? Mm -hmm. She's the surrogate for all of the, you know, people of privilege who happen to be watching the show, or not that they make up the entire audience. And suddenly she's in this environment which is like a a kind of, to her, a kind of jungle. And for the first time in her life, she's not getting good customer service. Uh Like she's told, you stand over there. And she can't believe it. She's like, you know, you're the cashier and I'm the customer. Like you're not treating me very nicely. And um, so the other people around her in the women's prison are like agents of her fear at first. And then what's a... Ama- like truly amazing about the show and almost unprecedented is you then go behind these like these masks of of uh, hostility one by one and you reach back into the biographies to where this person was vulnerable human the child in them got broken and it seems to me your sh- your character Nikki is really the essence of that it's the su- surprise that she if I, correct me if I'm wrong she's sort of upper west side ki- kid of privilege who took that and just had to throw that away or right directly back into her mother's face. The thing that I'd like to ask you as the person who created that character is 
how much lead time did you have with the scripts before you showed up on set and had to start creating this common reality with the other actresses? Were you able to start building that independent of knowing how you would organically interact with the other people in the show? Or is it something, I mean, it seems to me it's got to be an evolutionary process on a series where it's suddenly episode five where you really understand how these people are interacting, and then maybe it becomes kind of reciprocal with the writers. They're like, you know what, Natasha has this note she can hit, and we didn't know she could hit it when she walked in the door. Let's write this scene for her. Speak a little bit to that. How, what kind of prep did you do, and how much of what gets created happens pretty spontaneously in the process of making the show? One thing I would say is uh, it occurs to me in, uh, that Piper sort of gets a bad rap a little bit, uh, you know, in the sense that I, I, I think because of the world she's in, we sort of take for granted. It's, it's almost like, okay, there's too much zaniness. Uh, we need a straight man. But in fact, like Piper's uh, backstory is that she's like a drug smuggling, yeah. you know, wild one. And so she herself is actually, um, you know, uh, yeah, like maybe wants the customer service and all that. But is also, you know, I just think that like over time it's sort oh, of yeah. become this idea that she's like... You know, uh, Blonde and, and Taylor is, is uh, really a pretty, you know, uh, amazing and uh, complicated person, you know. So I just think it's interesting that even she is obviously pretty fleshed out and, and complex. Uh, and uh, beyond that, prep. Um, uh, well, uh, yeah. let, me, let me ask it a different way. I think my favorite moment in the series so far is Welcome to the Floor Kid when Red mm-hmm. is, it becomes, it's revealed to the audience that Red is the one who got you clean inside. That is what's being She revealed. is the working one. What's that? Huh? I, <laughs> she's the one who got you clean, right? I mean... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I remember it, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. um, did you know when you walked in the door to start the show that that was going to be your relationship to Red, or did that evolve? Uh, no, I mean, I knew... Um, I knew that she was uh, mom. I'd read the book. Um, I knew that she was sort of my mother figure. I knew, I mean, from all I'd read was the pilot episode and uh, Piper's memoir. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, uh, you know, um, I had a good deal of uh, personal, uh, you know, I had a prime more to draw on than most. I felt like I had done a lot of my prep work, um, Mm -hmm. sort of like... uh, like method like you know I don't want to like who am I to be like oh Daniel Day-Lewis whatever but like (laughs) um, I just want to like say that I felt like pretty prepared for the role Um, (laughs) and uh, and so yeah I knew from the pilot like oh yeah she's like you know my mother's a bitch I have some money and uh, I was I was a junkie and now I'm in this prison and that was about it and then we got there and we just sort of I remember the first day seeing uh, Danielle Brooks who plays Tasty and I was just sort of like yeah, I kind of like clocked her from a distance but there's so many of us it's like a kind of like catching people's names on the first day and uh, then I just sort of like ended up like watching a rehearsal I don't even know how because it was like all such beginning phases like why was I even in there and then like she kind of like came out and she was like you know, look at them TV titties or whatever. And before she had introduced herself and she was like, you know, hi, I'm Danielle. Yeah, I just got out of Juilliard. I'm really nervous. And then she was like, damn, look at those TV titties. And it was like, what, what is going on with this show? Uh, so it became a real 
question of like, all right, so the bar is set pretty high and you have to step up to the plate. Um, in terms of Kate Mulgrew, who I just uh, love working with, like, there's no room to play. Like, I think actors, you sometimes hear like, ah, oh, it's so great working with this person. Like, what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. Is that when you're looking in the eyes of this person, you just feel like you're actually going to be in like big trouble, like it's dangerous to, um, to not do your best job, you know? So... Kate has that thing about her of like, you know, like I remember sort of doing that cafeteria scene in the pilot and it just was like, oh yeah, yeah, well, how about you, sister? Uh, Yeah, I'd love to see you. And then like, you know, how about your yoga body with your sinewy arms or whatever? And like then Kate came in and she was like, yogurt, you know, (laughs) and the whole room like just kind of like grabs this tension to it. And to speak to that other business of, uh, you know, kicking dope on the floor, that was actually like one of these an eighth of a page uh, yeah. thing, which was just um, like Red consoles Nikki while she's sick from heroin, and I don't know how that became this like I don't know what we are going through personally or whatever that this became like I'm looking into Kate's eyes and she's looking into mine and now we're both crying. It becomes this like whole moment. I you know I, I haven't seen that episode, um, but. I know on the day it felt really kind of wild and it was like, you know, the show's pretty... You know, Jen Houston, the, the casting director, did an incredible job of just putting together all these people at very specific, like, moments in their life, you know, who were sort of uh, ready to kind of go all the way or something, you know, or to, like, expose these kind of darker sides of themselves in a more fearless way. Uh, yeah. Is it common for you not to have seen your own work, or is that specific to that episode? Uh, no, I haven't seen the show. Uh, <laughs> just to be clear, um, I've seen uh, the first episode of the show at the premiere of the first season, yeah. and then I saw the second. Um, I saw the first episode of the second season uh, at the premiere of that one. But in general, are you, are you not interested in watching yourself in things? You know. Um, eh. <laughs> it's like that uh, for me. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm sort of like, uh, hopefully I'll grow out of it or something. <laughs> I, I don't like it. It's just I get like, it. I get it. I don't listen to the podcast. Neither does he. Huh? I, we don't listen to the podcast, Steve and it's I. It's just Julia so fucking sometimes. weird, right? Like, yeah. And then like, everybody seems to be saying, like, I'm doing such a good job. I, mean, <laughs> I don't want to like sabotage it by being... Like, uh, also, I, you know, there's something about, like, even if you see a movie that you did, and uh, that I do reluctantly if I do it, and, but, like, you see, it's sort of spilt milk. Like, there's not much I can do at this point, right? Like, all right, I screwed everything up, and I'm a failure, and, wow, and that's what I look like. All right, wow, it's incredible. I'm still getting action. Amazing. (laughs) You know, so that's sort of, like, the experience of watching it, and especially, like, I remember a particularly difficult one for me was, like, at, like, you know... Sundance, 2002. Um, and uh, I'd done this movie with Charles Bush, who's like a great uh, theater player. And uh, Charles Bush had played my mother in this movie, Die, Mommy, Die. And Charles's thing is sort of like recreating... Uh, you know, he's very like, okay, I'll just take this from Joan Crawford and I'll take this from Garbo and here it is. And, uh, and I think that somewhere in there, because I love those movies so much, I sort of decided to do like an impression of Charles Bush doing an impression in the movie. And this is where it's tricky that I don't have acting like training. And then um, nobody told me or like stopped me. <laughs> and so when I saw the movie, I was like, wow, 
that's like a lot. That's a lot what I'm doing. <laughs> and it was like really minimizing because, you know, at the time it felt so good. Like I was finally getting to use all those voices I'd seen at the film forum played out to such great effect. <laughs> and like I was finally, it was all like coming, it was all going to make sense. And it was not what I was hoping. And uh, the movie didn't do very well, but people like it. And he, Charles is fabulous in the movie and so is Philip Baker Hall is great and everything. And... Uh, Anyway, what's the point of my story? I said, oh, so that's spilt milk. There's nothing I can do about it. There's no reshoots. It's a low-budget movie. But here, we're going to continue, you know, hopefully for multiple seasons. Do I want to start getting in my head being like, you know, be nice yeah. about Nikki if, like, you know, she made, like, this face more or maybe, like, you know, yeah. sucked her stomach in a little more. That would be a great choice for Nikki. <laughs> right. like, I feel like that would be the full scope of, like, how I would process the information. <laughs> and I don't know that that's so fucking helpful, ultimately. Yeah. One I feel like I, it's somewhere between like listening to your own voice on an answering machine and being waterboarded to have to experience yourself. Something between something person. and waterboarding? What was the other thing? Listening to your own voice on an answering machine. Yeah, and, and listening to your own voice on an answering machine is the whole thing, I think, yeah. really. Natasha, I have a little bit of a, a broader question about your career and about this moment in Hollywood for women, because as Julia was saying, it seems like Orange is the New Black is, I hope, kind of a trailblazer in, in that department, and that there are so many roles in that show for women and not one of them is an ingenue. You think maybe at the beginning that, that um, Taylor's role is going to be an ingenue, the Piper main character, but not at all. She reveals many other sides of herself early on in the show. And, uh, and you, having you know, begun your career playing young ingenues, I just wonder what you think about this moment. I could have asked Jenny Slate, our first guest, the same yeah. question. What is it like to be a young woman trying to find roles that, that offer more than what Hollywood has traditionally offered to young women? It's a really interesting time. Uh, I'm so, uh, I feel so lucky that you know, this show is so great. And uh, I, I think she sort of talks about that, that, that it sort of like frees you up to kind of uh, there's something happening or there's like something in the air at least in my air and, and Jenny's I think where you probably like get to m- start making things you know like you get to sort of be involved a little bit at inception and that becomes very exciting because then of course the roles are not going to be um, you know or they're only going to be as like dull as you actually are um, or um, <laughs> you know exciting depending or whatever or at least there's just more potential there for them to be um, more complicated I feel like you know my experience is probably like suddenly rare uh, um, you know or it's become rare suddenly I something like uh, you know I had Tamara Jenkins obviously who did Slums of Beverly Hills and then I had Jamie Babbitt who did But I'm a Cheerleader and uh, and uh, then I just did this other movie with Jamie that I finished last week called Fresno with Judy Greer who's amazing and um, Carrie Dernetto wrote it who's uh, you know like this uh, a great comedy writer and I got to work with Nora Ephron and uh, just like all these uh, amazing women and now Genji and so I just like had this incredible experience, like being surrounded. I just did Leslie Headland's movie. I'm remembering all these, you know, incredible women who are just so bright and singular. And um, you know, so I think that I've been having this sort of maybe rarefied experience where uh, I'm just surrounded by these incredible women. And so I guess it just doesn't really come up that much. That like, you know, it would be nice is if she was like a little bit less interesting or something. Because you know, the women that are writing them are obviously such uh, you know heavyweights that they can't help but think that women are three-dimensional people because they themselves are, you know, suffering with what it's like. So uh, <laughs> I, I just think that's been really great. And in terms of, like, the ingenue business, you know, I'm personally so relieved that that ship has sailed. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that that caused me great trouble in my life. Like, you know, trying to sort of keep up with the Joneses of being an ingenue is really, like, 
just a losing game. I just I don't envy uh, the ingenue who's in that present circumstance, like trying to make sense of it all and 19 and and just it just seems like such a weird and you know like putting on a borrowed outfit and going to an event and like this is my job now and trying to like figure out what it's like to be a person in the world while doing that um it's a lot uh more fun to be like settled and 35 and like oh yeah i've been around for a second uh let's make another thing you know it feels like a lot more like fun and substantial and um gives me like flashes of what it would have been like to be in the 70s or something and you know all those guys like sitting around and it's like yeah let's give this one a Hal Ashby yeah Hal Ashby will be great for this picture like it makes me feel like we're going to be thinking thoughts like that and I like that feeling all right well why don't we end it there on the kind of amazing synergy going on now between women show creators and directors and the previously underutilized talents that are now doing truly remarkable work on a regular basis you preeminent among them. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure. And your work is Thank amazing. you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. See you later. Natasha Leone. Thank you. you know about Are you guys trying to ask me a question that's going to make me do a weird exit? This is going to be a weird exit. What do you want me to endorse yep. something? I think we're stuck. <laughs> yeah, do you want to stick around and do that or do you want to... I am endorsing something. Yeah. Oh, Thank you so much. No, I don't know how this works, but let's do it. I know how it works. Let's do it. What happens? <laughs> All right. Endorsements. She's going to endorse. Great. She's going to endorse. It's well, why don't we do it first so she can get a sense? Then you can think about it while we're talking. You guys do whatever. I'm ready for whatever. <laughs> My portion of the interview is done. Okay. <laughs> you guys just do whatever. We're going to do whatever. All right, Dana. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse what do you have. All right, so I decided to go ambitious and literary with this week's endorsement, so I printed it out so I don't get any of the facts wrong, I hope, and I want to dedicate this endorsement to my friend David Foreman, who is the person who showed me this beautiful passage in the first place. So my endorsement, and remember that I'm on my minimalist jag. If you're a listener, you know that I'm now trying to do minimalist endorsements for the next few months, and this is in that vein. It's just a beautiful little passage of writing by a 7th century English monk, Stephen? (laughs) A 7th century English monk by the name of the Venerable Bede, who was one of the first English historians. He wrote a history of the church in England that was one of the first histories ever written in England. Not in English, it was written in Latin. And uh, and there's this gorgeous passage from it that, again, my my friend David Foreman pointed out to me. Uh, What's happening in this passage is um, King Edwin... The king, I guess, in the 7th century, has called in the chief priest to advise him on whether or not England should convert to Christianity. And, uh, and this is the, the priest's advice, which strangely and beautifully seems to have almost nothing to do with the question, but just becomes this flight of philosophical sort of uh, wisdom. The present life of man upon earth, O king, seems to me, in comparison with that time which is unknown to us, like the swift flight of a sparrow through a mead hall, where you sit at supper in winter, with your eldermen and thanes, while the fire blazes in the midst and the hall is warmed, but the wintry storms of rain or snow are raging abroad. This sparrow, flying in at one door and immediately out at another, whilst he is within, is safe from the wintry tempest. But after a short space of fair weather, he immediately vanishes out of your sight, passing from winter to winter again. So this life of man appears for a little while, but of what is to follow or what went before, we know nothing at all. 
If, therefore, this new doctrine tells us something more certain, it seems justly to be followed in our kingdom. So I just, I love this passage because there's something so timelessly modern about it. This image that you're sitting in a mead hall and a sparrow flies through from winter to winter and that's human life. And the idea that that would therefore make you want to convert your country to Christianity seems almost counterintuitive because it's sort of a statement of, of meaningless, meaninglessness of life almost, but, but such a beautiful image of the bird flying through the mead hall. So Do you realize that my endorsement tonight is about a trapped and dazed starling? <laughs> wow, synergy. Yeah. <laughs> Philosophical synergy. Now nah, right? I'm just fucking with you. Yeah, Julia, what do you got? <laughs> um, no birds will be killed in the making of this endorsement. <laughs> well, I have to confess here with John August and Craig Mason in the house that every single week before I do the show, my husband, who, who works in television, says, you have to endorse Weekend Read. Weekend Read is this app that John August is responsible for. That I don't even understand what it does. It allows you to read PDFs on your phone in a useful way. And if you're a person who works with scripts, it's incredibly important to you. And my husband is so excited about it. And he's been wanting me to endorse it for months. And I don't know what it is. And I can't endorse it because I've never used it. Because I never read PDFs because I'm not in your business. But for those of you who are, my husband really likes Weekend Read. The thing I'm actually going to endorse... Uh, <laughs> is a book called My Brilliant Friend by Alana Ferrante. And this is the book that is getting passed around amongst my friends right now the way Gone Girl was passed around a couple summers ago. And it's not... That's maybe does it a disservice, that comparison, because it is not a pulpy page-turner in quite that way. But it is a book about two friends written by one of them grown, looking back on her childhood after the other has disappeared. And even though it is not a pulpy page-turner... She finds suspense in these little teeny dark moments of childhood, a doll that gets ruthlessly thrown down a cellar or the scary staircase that you climb up that your friend goads you into climbing. Um, And she captures the tension and drama of those teensy little moments of childhood in this totally bone-chilling way and also a very suspenseful way. She kind of cuts between different memories um, in this acerbic, dark sinister and yet really bracing and compelling way and the books are just so good so if like me all of your friends have been urging you to read them for months and months and months you should start the first one is My Brilliant Friend by Alana Ferrante and it's very good my mother is obsessed with those books she was just vigorously recommending all three of them to me I also vigorously recommend them Mm. Uh, Natasha Um, mine is uh, less literary I did not realize the full scope of this um (laughs) Um, this show does not have a low IQ. Um, I was just going to talk about it. Maybe this isn't even uh, like uh, topical. It's like um, I think it's been around for a second, but I just only saw it recently. The show Black Mirror, Charlie Brooker. Right. That was my. I look at that. Everybody, everybody knows about it. Doesn't even work. This game doesn't even work. Oh no, no, that's. I know um, about it. Have you guys seen it? No. It's a great show. Uh, Wait, what's the title again? Black Mirror. Yeah, so I'm supposed to do, like, a whole thing. Hold on a second. In the first episode of the show, um, it's, uh, it's really great. It's sort of in, like, the not-too-distant future. Some really disturbing things. There's this one great one that, um, how long should this take? About, like, three more seconds or 60? It's okay if I talk for a second? Like, I'm the I think... Weimariner in the passenger seat of this endorsement. I think. <laughs> 
say there's this, um, I, I think like Robert Downey Jr. actually optioned, um, they're like a standalone episodes, and I think there's only what, like eight of them or something, nine of them, and uh, yeah, I think the one that he optioned was about like, so that they're all in this weird sort of futuristic world, and uh, you can basically, like, you have like a chip in your brain, and you can sort of like record all the events of your life. The guy goes in on this uh, appointment, like, oh, I'm a lawyer, can I get the job? And then he sort of replays the events of this uh, you know, a, a job interview that he had to kind of see where he went right or wrong and clock everyone's responses, like, you know, essentially a camera in your brain. And when he gets home, he sees his wife and she's sort of like flirting with somebody at the dinner party. And he gets like so obsessed, obsessed with the idea that he like becomes convinced she was having an affair. And, you know, um, he can't quite get it out of her, um, which is, I guess, where we're at as a society. But then, you know, he gets to the point that he like sort of like rips her chip out and watches, and in fact, she did have an affair with him, um, and it's just like so, you know, traumatizing and sort of the aftermath of that, like, and ripping out his own chip, and so it's a very, whatever, sort of like uh, Philip K. Dick or something like that, but the way that Charlie Brooker does it is just like so terrifying and speaks to like exactly where we're at right now, like, should we sort of um, continue along this path, like, they have a sort of, um, like, an American Idol-ish kind of a one of like, you know, just... I mean, for the people that have seen it, it's sort of hard to describe, but it's really, a, a, I thought, a really um, brilliant show that, uh, you know, gets you going. So that's my endorsement, Black Mirror. Excellent. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, so I had, um, I had two ideas for an endorsement. I kind of was uh, juggling them in my head and inspired by our uh, last guest. I'm going to go with the um, much better of the two though slightly less quick. <laughs> um, not fully Talmudic, though, but, um, but not fast. There's a Richard Wilbur poem called The Writer, and what I love so much about this poem is, you know, I have a daughter who's, I have an 11-year-old daughter, an 8-year-old daughter, and my 8-year-old daughter is sort of fantastically uncomplicated and, and um, in the best sense of the word, exhibitionistic and, you know, very in love with the world and other people in an uncomplicated way. And my older daughter's quite complicated and interior and involute, and... Um, and you wish your kids an easy life in some sense, right? You have a powerfully protective impulse, and you want, as this poem says, you want to wish your child a lucky passage. And in this poem, but then the, the point of the poem is that maybe you don't, actually. And he's, the person who's writing the poem, presumably Richard Wilbur, is walking through his house to the sound of his daughter, who's, I'm going to say, around 11 or 12, pounding at a typewriter. And the poem is called, I think I may have said, The Writer. And he comes across her... Um, and he suddenly realizes it was glib to ask that her life be easy, right? And he says, I remembered the dazed starling, <laughs> which was trapped in that very room two years ago, how we stole in, lifted a sash, and retreated not to affright it, and how for a helpless hour through the crack of the door we watched the sleek, wild, dark, and iridescent creature batter against the brilliance, drop like a glove to the hard floor or the desktop, and wait then, humped and bloody, for the wits to try it again, and how our spirits rose when, suddenly sure, it lifted off from a chair back, beating a smooth course for the right window and clearing the sill of the world. It is always a matter, my darling, of life or death, as I had forgotten. I wish what I wished you before, but harder. It's a perfect poem. Thank you so much for coming. Natasha, thanks for coming on our show. Thank it was you. an absolute blast. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot.
All right, well, that brings us to the end of our Los Angeles Live Culture Gab Fest. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. Thanks also to Jack Becht, Aaron Bergen, Shannon Hansen, and Lindsay Nelson, and to the staff and management of the gorgeous, quite gorgeous, Belasco Theater in downtown Los Angeles. And especially big thanks once again to Acura, who's making this entire National Slate podcast tour possible. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Dana Stevens, Julia Turner, for Craig Mays and John August, for Jenny Slate, and for Natasha Leone, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll talk to you soon. All right, we're going to do a little Q&A, five questions, and then we're going to get drunk. Guys, thank you for coming to L.A. I, uh, yeah, I feel like this is... I went to War on Drugs a couple weeks ago, and that was fun and exciting, but this is way more exciting. I feel like everybody here is in this small community of culture gabfesters, and it's really cool to, I don't know, participate in all this. Um, I was just going to ask you guys. So, Steve, you said you were in a couple pitches today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like all three of you are very aspirational figures. I don't know, just in my life, maybe other people's lives, because you're so you know, intellectual and smart in the way you approach cultural things. Have you guys ever thought about maybe, you know, Steve, it sounds like you're trying to maybe become a creator. And I was thinking, like, you know, Dana or Julie, like, do you guys all kind of have aspirations beyond just working at Slate and maybe... Uh, creating, you know, cultural iconic things yourselves? That's a question. Dissertation, baby. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, Steve's the one who was pitching Hollywood fancy people today. Maybe he can speak to that. To be a creator, not a destroyer. Um, Yeah, no, I think the answer is yes. I mean, I'm writing a nonfiction book. You know, is there some unbreachable wall between fiction and nonfiction by which fiction is creating and nonfiction is just kind of describing. I don't think that that's true. I mean, mine will not be a great nonfiction book, but the great nonfiction books transcend that divide completely in, in Cold Blood and Executioner's Song and everything Joan Didion ever wrote and Janet Malcolm ever wrote were great works of art. They're absolutely creators, so aspirationally I want to imitate them. In terms of the screenplay, a friend of mine and I optioned a nonfiction book that we admire that has gone just unjustly ignored and uh, if you're in the business, come uh, walk up with me. I don't know. Anyway, and it's going okay. So what about you guys? Well, my new job's keeping me kind of busy. Um, so creating Slate is the, is the thing I'm working on right now. But, I, you know, I, like, I feel like if you... Part of why I'm an editor is I like to understand how things work. I like to understand the puzzle box of what makes a story work, what makes an argument persuasive, what makes a description offer that feeling of reveal of like, oh yeah, I've seen a face like that, or I know, I know exactly what that writer means. Um, and so part of why I love listening to John and Craig's podcast is I feel like it helps me understand the puzzle box of a movie. And, you know, I'm an editor more so than a writer, and I think that will always be true. But sure, it, w- it would be fun to like try and write a screenplay and see how that worked. I imagine that'll happen sometime in the like, 2040s. Maybe I'll give it a shot. It's not, it's not high on the docket. 
I don't know. I, I think my answer might be somewhat similar to Steve's in that I hope I'm already engaged in creative work now. It, it might not take the form of a, a work of fiction, but you know, I certainly am trying to. I'm bringing everything I have as a writer to everything I do already. Um, have I thought about redefining what? in what way I'm a writer? Yeah, definitely. But I have a, a neurotic block about the idea that I'm incapable of creating a kind of work of realistic fiction with a beginning, middle, and end. I have no idea how to do that. It seems like a dizzyingly hard thing to do. Uh, I was asked to do something at Slate a few years ago that I said at the time I would do and overpromised and was never able to do, which was sort of create um, work with a graphic novelist and basically sort of write a little movie idea that would be illustrated by a graphic novelist as a, as a comic strip, which was a great idea. It seemed really fun, but I had absolutely no idea how to shape that story. I could listen to John August and Craig Mazin all day, and I just wouldn't become a writer who's able to do that. So whatever kind of creative work I would imagine myself making would probably not be in, in that genre. I don't know what it would be. I don't know. I love your podcast, and I would have come anyway, but I think we were promised pie and a serenade. <laughs> you did say you would do your Bono impression. Okay. Did anyone bring a guitar? Uh, okay. But, hush. <laughs> <laughs> so two things. The first, you're in deep shit, whoever you are. The, the, the first thing is it, 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 it's very hard to ship a pie, it turns out. <laughs> You have to... Oh, my God. Man, tough crowd. You have to... What's that? Gap, oh, you got the gap. Yeah. It's pretty. It's nice, right? Rocking the hillbilly. But it's... Um, you, have to pa- you have to freeze it. You have to pack it in dry ice, and it's like a 50-50 chance that it ever really gets there intact. We tried. We really made the phone calls, but it just... The pie wasn't going to happen. And then the stipulation was someone had to bring a guitar, standard tune, acoustic guitar, no capo, Harmonica, where is it? Oh, no serenade. <laughs> I can't believe you're weaseling out of this one. You should have at least sung the your pie litany of excuses in your Bono voice. Can we say this, Steve? Can we say that at the New York Superfest that we're doing in November, you and John Dickerson both play guitar. If we bring a guitar and a capo and a pick, will you play a song? No, Trouble. not a song. The Bono impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to sit around and listen to Steve just play the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Not in this shirt. All right. Who's, uh, who's next? I could make my question go so long that someone could go get a guitar, and it could happen. <laughs> but I'm not going to threaten you like that. What, what my question is is uh, about... Well, I'll, make, I'll just say the question first, explain on the back end, because I know you guys are going to process it a bit, which is um, how do you deal with your celebrity? Now, I, now you process, oh, I'm so modest, I'm not a celebrity. But there's, there's kind of this new breed of celebrity of, um, of someone that we know because they're on a podcast, we listen to them, and, and we hear so much about their lives. Uh, it's not the days of Garbo where if you saw her in a Hollywood bar back in 1932, you would know nothing about her, even Nicole Kidman. But you guys and Mark Maron and so many other podcasters, we know so much intimately about their lives that how, how do you deal with, with knowing that there's that relationship out there? That, you know, I, I knew nothing but my favorite film critic was Gene Siskel for years. But I, I couldn't tell you anything about it. But, but you know, Dana, I, can, I know because I hear her every week. She explains her life. She explains her interest, her dissertation. So, like, um, how, do you, how, do you, how do you deal with people who know you so well and it's not stalkery? I think the guitar is here, so. <laughs> <laughs> that was meant sweetly. <laughs> 
I mean, okay, you totally short-circuited the, the modest... None of us feels like celebrities. I don't think. I don't feel like a celebrity. But I think for me, the easiest thing about it is that I'm a podcast listener. And so I know the relationship because I have it myself with Mark Maron or John and Craig. I mean, I heard when I was sitting down in the green room, which really is lit red like a lurid sex dungeon. But um, I was sitting down there with Dane and Steve in the sex dungeon on our laptops, nerdily looking things up. And I heard John and Craig's voices coming down the stairs, and I was like, oh my God, that's John and Craig. Like, uh, you know, they're celebrities to me. Um, And so I think understanding that relationship very intimately and how personal it feels to have someone's thoughts in your head and to have that recurring relationship with them week after week where you think, oh, I wonder what they're going to say about this new movie, or, you know, I wonder wonder what they're going to talk about next. Um, And you learn little bits and details about their lives. I understand that, and I sort of understand my own aspect towards it, so it makes it easier to process when other people feel that way about us or say, oh, congratulations, you had twins. You know, it's like not weird that some random person I met might know that because I, I know where they got that information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I would say I'm being a podcast celebrity, if that's what we are, is a good kind of celebrity to be. I mean, for one thing, it's not connected with your you know, physical body so much, right? Somebody might know what we look like from coming to a live show or looking at a picture, but basically it's your voice that they know. And I have been recognized by my voice. We were talking about this yesterday on a radio spot that Julie and I did together. The guy asked, has anyone ever recognized you by your voice and come up and said, oh, you're Dana Stevens? And that has happened maybe four or five times. And it's always delightful. It's always an interesting person that I then stand on the subway and have an interesting conversation with. It's nothing like what it would be to have your body be famous. I always always think that would just be the worst thing in the world. Just that Mm -hmm. level of, you know, Brad Pitt fame where you can't walk out of your house and be free anymore seems absolutely horrible. But yeah, having a little niche of podcast nerds who like to talk to you on the subway is great. <laughs> I mean, the only thing I... The, it, but the weirdest thing, oddly enough, is the relationship I have to people I already know who I don't see them for three months or three years or whatever. I'm like, oh my God, we're so out of touch. And they're like, no, we're not. Yeah. They, they've like totally had their fill. Like they know everything <laughs> about me. My chickens, my pie, they're like... No, they don't care anymore. Cool, that, it does, it like, what happens is you get to be better friends with strangers in the subway, but your real friends stop calling because they like, don't <laughs> need to, the real update. No, they've had the fix, right? No, absolutely. Yeah. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for your... Thank you so much for your good work. It's a real joy to read and to listen to. Um, I wanted to recommend to anyone who's interested in the supposed divide between criticism and art... Oscar Wilde's The Critic as Artist, that dialogue, um, which shows that to aspire to good art is to aspire to good criticism and vice versa. And my question for you is about contempt and how productive you find contempt to be in criticism, Um, whether you find that it obstructs your relationship to what you're trying to criticize or uh, whether you find opportunities um, in, in contempt. That's a great question. Yeah. yeah. It kind of goes to what Craig Mazin thinks about my work, <laughs> that I'm just some sort of horrible, jaundiced person who tears everything down. I mean, I don't think contempt is a fun, uh, critical emotion, a cr- critical place to work from. You know, contempt is just, it's, it's, there's not very much there. It reminds me actually of the, the Kardashians when we talked about keeping up with the Kardashians and just the feeling that I always have about reality TV of there's nowhere to go with that emotion. You know, you can decide that the Kardashians are contemptible and you can think that you're superior to them and you can sort of judge them for their materialism, but it's, it's a sterile place. And I think that it's, it's the same thing with criticism. Then, then again, I mean, it can be really fun to pan a terrible movie, but I don't like to think of it as coming from a place of contempt. Well, contempt suggests that you're not 
entertaining the possibility that it might be good to me. Like contempt is that you find so little of value in it that you don't even try to understand what it might be doing or how it could work or how it might have worked. It's just, you, it's just so dismissive. And I think for the reasons Craig cited, actually, like criticism is just dismissive, is not interesting, and it's not, you know, it's not interesting. I mean, that said, I do think we talk off the cuff on the, sh- on the show. We talk about, oh, I never liked that actor, or oh, I'm always su- I'm surprised when so-and-so did well in something. I think it's useful to, that in conversation with each other, we don't always have to be so careful and we can kind of be like, I always hated that guy. You know, like to be able to, to talk as people really do about how they emotionally respond to things um, that they see in the culture. It's not necessarily contemptuous, but sometimes you are a little more flip in conversation than you would be in like a critical work or a piece of writing. And I think that can animate the conversation sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I think rhetoric, one's own rhetoric can take on an internal energy to itself. And suddenly you're participating in a performance of your own contempt or expression of your own contempt and you've lost the uh, connection to the thing that you're talking about uh, and that's unforgivable I think as a critic at the same time we have to understand I think we have to acknowledge that like were there nothing contemptible in the world then contempt would be contemptible right but but there are contemptible things you know there are hateful things like there are things that earn your hate and you know part of one's job as a critic is to say as honestly as possible you know I really think this thing is degrading in some essential way right and and I'm going to point it out and you know here it comes so at the beginning you said and you made no apologies for uh, promulgating an east coast liberal elitist opinion collectively if you will um, to what extent do you struggle with that when you opine week after week about the variety of subjects you tackle? Um, do you feel it's important for you to step outside of yourself uh, as a thinker and as an opinion holder and try to perhaps bring a different prism to your critiques? Or is that irrelevant and should we think of culture? cultural criticism outside of ourselves? I mean, I think in general it's grounded in specific views and on the show in particular it's our, it's our three voices in conversation and it would be less interested if I were trying to be robot Julia just responding in some objective way to a piece of culture. I mean, I think, honestly, that's, that's a department where we could do better. We are, I mean, I'm not from the East Coast, I'm from Texas, but we all, you know, inhabit this East Coast cultural center, and we all imbibe the media from that place, and we're of the media from that place, and I think it would be a great corrective for us sometimes to, uh, to try to move into other parts of the country, topics that aren't something that everybody in that media center is talking about. I think it's a corrective that we could usefully apply, to the, especially to the topics that we choose. You know, a lot of times the topics we choose will be sort of what everybody's talking about that week, but who's everybody, right? We sometimes could maybe rethink who that everybody is who's doing the talking. Right, I'll just say quickly to wrap it up. I mean, in one, on the one hand, maybe we sometimes speak with this voice of something that is pervasive, uh, unselfconscious, and too omnipresent and powerful, but we're pretty niche, and also we're, we're, we speak in a pretty kind of bizarrely idiosyncratic, I mean, voice. I don't think we, I mean, for better and for worse, we don't sound like much else that's out there, and yeah, there, it's, it's easier to caricature what it is we are, 
But that's different from also saying, like, oh, my God, well, every time I turn on NPR, I hear someone who sounds like Dana Stevens, because I don't think you do at all. So anyway, thank you so much for coming. It was a total blast. (laughs) 